Lord, that you would give us faith to believe and that you would give us courage to act on all that you're calling us to do and be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a time in my life when I was broken and without hope. But there was a friend who took the time to share with me that while I was still in sin, Christ died for me to make me right with God. So I turned from my sin and I trusted in Jesus. And since that time, my life has been marked by hope and peace. Do you have a story like that? Have you had that kind of life-changing encounter with Jesus? Do those in your circle of influence know your story of hope in Jesus? What would it be like if stories of hope like that began to flood this community that we call home? You see, we communicate what we cherish. We're never going to communicate the gospel broadly until we cherish the gospel deeply. And today's scripture that Carter just read illustrates that through a conversation that Jesus has with a broken woman. That conversation caused her to trust and to cherish Jesus so deeply that it was immediately followed by her going and communicating about him, about the change that he had just made in her life throughout her community. So in John 4, we see and learn about how Jesus' message of hope It's for broken people like me and broken people like you. And it made its way, this story of hope made its way from a well in a village called Sychar all the way from the first century to this entertainment-saturated and skeptical world that we live in today. And while we're thinking about the conversation that we just read through, let's see what we can learn to help us to spread this message of hope in our community and beyond. You see, we live in an age where stories go viral for all of the wrong reasons. There are entire media outlets and platforms that are built around entertaining people with stories that would have been obscure if it weren't for cell phones and cameras and the ever-present connection to the internet. Kat and I have this silly little tradition. Every night before we go to bed, uh, we watch goofy animal videos uh, just so that we can laugh. Uh, We want to end our day with a laugh together. It's a harmless practice, but it makes me wonder how meaningless messages like that have spread and gone viral and come into our home. But it's not just modern media and cameras that make a story spread like wildfire. If you go all the way back to 350 years B.C., uh, there was a guy named Aristotle who was wondering how he could take his speech his conversations with his students and communicate them in such a way that they would go viral, that they would pass from person to person through the ages. And when he was studying speech, he came up with three principles, logos, pathos, and ethos. He said that we can't just pass along content, we have to convey our content in a story, a story that connects to cultural aspirations, that's ethos that connects with people's emotional needs, that's pathos, and with reasoned argumentation, that's logos. So this morning, what I want us to do is take a look at the passage that was read, and we're going to see three aspects to this story and break those down over the next few minutes together. The first thing that we're going to see is the setting. 
the setting of this passage in this conversation. And then we're going to see the scene and the substance of the conversation as it unfolds. And then we're going to see the spread of that message as it went viral. So we have the setting, the scene and the substance, and then the spread. So let's briefly start with the setting of that conversation. And if you have your Bibles or your devices, you can look at verses 1 through 9 and you'll see the points that I'm trying to draw from there. Let's look at the broad historical significance of several aspects of this passage. The first question I want to address is, who are the Samaritans? Who are these people uh, that Jesus is now engaging with the gospel? Who, who is this woman? Well, the passage says that Jesus left Judea, that's in the southern part of Palestine, and he departed again for Galilee, that's north in Palestine. And it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, most travelers who were headed to, from Judea to Galilee would have taken the long route, and they would have avoided this land known as Samaria. And they would have done so because of ethnic and religious and political contention that existed between them and the people who lived there. But note in this story today that Jesus felt like he had to pass through Samaria. In other words, he was acting with intentionality. The Samaritans were believed to have emerged about 800 years before the time of Christ, when the Assyrians had come in and conquered the northern kingdom or the northern tribes of Israel. And they had exiled many of the inhabitants of those tribes to other lands and then repopulated the area with pagans that intermarried with uh, the, uh, the tribes of Israel that were living there. And so those people... Um, began to adapt the message of uh, the, the story of Scripture. Gary Burge, a biblical scholar, notes that uh, in time, monotheism began to prevail in that region, but not without some serious modifications. So the Samaritans were monotheistic, and they embraced the first five books of the Bible, what's known as the Pentateuch. But... They adapted those. They changed some of the place names and they changed some of the people in order to fit and to support their own lifestyle. And they even came to a time where they built their own temple in a place called Shechem. And Shechem is important because Sychar, the village where this woman and this encounter happens, is actually the name change from Shechem to Sychar. Our own Jerry Lassiter says that his early is 1 Kings chapter 16, the northern tribe of Israel was identified as Samaria. Think about the stories of King Ahab and Jezebel. But eventually the, the inhabitants of that area saw themselves as the true worshipers of God. Now eventually the tribes of Judah, the southern tribes, were also conquered and they were scattered. So by the close of the Old Testament period of time, documented in 2 Chronicles and in Ezra and Nehemiah, Samaria felt threatened by the Jews as they were coming and returning to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The conflicts between the Jewish people and the Samaritans continued all the way up until the time of Jesus, including the fact that Jews, about 120 years before this conversation, attacked and destroyed the temple that the Samaritans had built in the city of Shechem. First century historian Josephus even notes that as early as 40 B.C., Samaritans were prone to attacking Jewish travelers and retribution for their temple being destroyed. 
So when Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's quite a controversial story because what he's actually doing is he's naming the enemy of the Jews and he's supporting them as perhaps even the hero of that particular story. And so now we find ourselves in this passage in John chapter 4 and Samaria is only mentioned four times in the New Testament. The parable of the Good Samaritan when James and John received their nickname, Sons of Thunder, because they asked Jesus, Jesus if they should call down uh, lightning from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus forbade the 12 disciples from going to the villages of the Samaritans. And then again in Acts, where Jesus commissions the disciples to now go as missionaries to Samaria And then in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes and sees a great revival take place among the Samaritans. But of all of these things in the background, the thing that we need to understand is that the common theme between the Jews and the Samaritans is that both peoples were looking for the Messiah. Both of them were expecting God to send a rescuer. You say, okay, George, why the history lesson? Why does all this matter? Here's our first point of application. We should explore ways to potentially break down barriers that are keeping those far from God from responding and hearing the gospel. Jesus was very intentional in breaking tradition, and he crossed political and cultural boundaries in order to bring hope to the broken. You'd think that crossing all of those lines is going to lead to a huge conflict, but notice in our passage today, that Jesus doesn't allow allow that conversation to denigrate into an argument. Understand this when it comes to reaching our community. No one ever wins an argument. No one. If you win the argument, you lose the person. So Jesus didn't let politics or politically charged religious rhetoric divert him from bringing a message of hope to a, a, a that actually transcends cultures, and we shouldn't allow that to happen either. So first, there was the Samaritans. The next thing I want us to notice in the passage is the well. What's the importance of this well? Well, in verse 6, it says that this is Jacob's well. And so Jesus sits down beside this well. Jacob had purchased this property some two millennia earlier. And so he had dug a well, or perhaps his children had dug a well in this place, and the nearby village of Sychar was on the outskirts of uh, that area. And so culturally, the importance of this well is that retrieving water from a commu- for the community was usually a task that fell to the women. They normally did so early in the morning or early in the evening in the cool of the day. But it wasn't just a task. It wasn't just a job. Women treated this as a social event. It was a time where they who spent most of their time inside in their own homes could interact with other women. And oftentimes, it was a place where they would talk and tell stories and perhaps even gossip. So fetching water was a a time to catch up with their neighbors, which explains why this woman kept her responsibility, but perhaps avoided that scene and all that usually accompanied it. So the well is an example of what sociologists might call a third place. A third place is where people oftentimes would gather outside of home or work in order to find community. And 
their, their culture had transformed this task into something social and communal, much like people treat going to the gym in our day. Kat and I are members at Planet Fitness, and um, if our schedule permits, we work out at 5 in the morning, and we go there, and ironically, at 5 in the morning, there are quite a number of people at Planet Fitness. Uh, but if we can't fit that into our schedule then, we try to go in the afternoon after work at about 4.30, and then the place is absolutely packed. But you know, Planet Fitness is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what I want you to think about is that when you go to work out, it's not just about working out. It's about interacting and seeing people and we'll chat. Uh, we've got a couple of people in here that we speak with every time that we're there. It's a time to catch up. But when we think about this woman, what I want you to think about is the person that might show up at Planet Fitness at 3 o'clock in the morning to work out. Not because that's the only time their work schedule would permit, but rather because that's the only time they feel comfortable going out. They're ashamed or perhaps a little bit insecure, and so they show up to work out at that odd hour of the night. And so the woman is out at the well at a very odd time. It says in the passage she was there at about the sixth hour. And so the, the phrase at the sixth hour actually is unique to John's gospel, and it only shows up two times in this passage. It shows up here with the woman at the well. She's out there in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, avoiding interacting with these other women. And the only other time this phrase shows up is in John chapter 19, and it says that the religious leaders actually reject Jesus at the sixth hour and call him to trial. So in response to Jesus' request for a drink of water, the woman notes, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So that phrase actually means that they don't drink from the same vessel. So when we're thinking about why would Jesus engage this woman, we have to understand that women and men wouldn't interact, Jews and Samaritans wouldn't act. Uh, they didn't drink from the same vessel. Why? Because for Jewish law, it would say that it would make Jesus ritually unclean. And the interesting thing is, a well provides clean drinking water, but the water from a well could not be used for ritual purification to make an unclean person clean. And this is significant because when Jesus offers the woman living water, that word is used to describe moving, flowing, actively bubbling water that has a source that's perpetual. Only living water could be used for ritual cleaning, and she needed more than just a drink. And so when she says that Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans, she's noting the boundary between them. And yet Jesus is willing to cross this boundary. He's willing to defy the taboos in order to offer this woman hope. According to Jewish law and tradition, interaction with this woman would have been for, forbidden because she was not only unclean, she was three times unclean. She was a Samaritan, she was a woman, and she was a woman who was living with a man that she wasn't married to. And the law says that when something that's clean touches something that's unclean, that which is clean is made unclean. But a quick tour through the stories of Jesus and his encounters with broken people shows us that when that which is clean, Jesus, touches that which is unclean, think of the demoniac. 
Think of the bleeding woman. Think of the leper. Think of the dead that Jesus raised. When that which is clean, Jesus touched that which is unclean. That which is unclean is made clean. Make no mistake that the very fact that Jesus initiated this conversation was scandalous. The difference is that this scandal in the woman's life, the scandal of this conversation, is actually going to bring her out of her shame and into a place of healing and flourishing. How? Biblical scholar Chad Bird notes that Genesis encounters at, the we- at different wells generally resulted in marriages. I want you to think of Isaac. His servant goes and finds his wife, Rebecca at a well. Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. Even Moses' wife, Zipporah, was, was uh, found at a well. So when John alludes to this story, he's noting that Jesus had the conversation with this woman by a well, maybe pointing to a sacred spiritual romance that would end with this woman who is unclean in every imaginable way to the Jewish mind, scandalously becoming an inaugural part of the bride of Christ. In addition, John is all about uh, Jesus' interaction with all kinds of people. John is the master of juxtaposition. Just look at the story that comes before this one in, in John's gospel. John chapter 3, Jesus encounters and has a conversation with a religious man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark of the night because he's afraid of what people might think, and they have a conversation that ends with Nicodemus pondering whether or not this could be true, but not yet believing. He's in the dark. But here in today's passage, in John chapter 4, you've got an irreligious woman who approaches Jesus in the heat of the day at this well, and the passage is going to end not with this woman pondering, but with this woman embracing what Jesus says about himself, and then becoming bold in her witness to her community because She has come out of hiding, out of darkness. Make no mistake, both of them were hiding. Nicodemus was hiding under the cover of night. This woman was hiding in broad daylight. The difference is, is John is pointing out for us that this woman embraced the teaching of Jesus and it changed everything about her. You see, we live in a day and age where there's this cultural milieu that has... Uh, uh, there's a vague familiarity with Christianity, but it's been mixed with a myriad of other unbiblical messages. If you ask the average person in Wake Forest if they're a Christian, most people would say yes. Our neighbors want spirituality, but without substance. If they want Christianity, oftentimes they want the kind that's described in country music songs, where they get to go on living exactly like they're living and not have many requirements that accompany that. And this often creates a tension between gospel-centered churches like our own and the community, the people that live around us. And this manifests often in ungodly separatism on our part that mirrors the way that the Jews would treat the Samaritans in this day. Is theology important? Absolutely. But don't miss the fact that Jesus defied cultural norms and went to places that needed hope, understanding that those people didn't need a better grasp of systematic theology in order to come to God. 
What they needed was to be gripped by the gift of God and the gospel of grace that says God came for us. So how might we follow Jesus to minister to that kind of people? How might we offer hope in our community? The next thing I want you to notice in this passage is the scene and the substance of the conversation. And that's found in chapter 4, verses 10 through 26. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus responds in this scenario by offering the woman living water. What did it mean when he offered her living water? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And everyone, he says in verse 13, who drinks of this water of the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a well within them springing up to eternal life. That phrase, living water, as I mentioned earlier, means moving or fresh water with a continuous source. Metaphorically, it means life from God. And it's a phrase or a concept that runs throughout the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, God speaks saying, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah is describing God offering the cup of salvation to his people filled and overfilled with living water. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns. They've dug wells for themselves, broken wells that can't hold water. So Jeremiah is describing how God's people sinned both in rejecting God and his living water and by trying to dig their own wells, trying to earn their own salvation. In John 7, right after this passage, Jesus stands up at the end of the feast and says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said this speaking about the Spirit whom those that were about to believe would receive. Even in Revelation, the story of hope ends with God describing heaven using the term living water. Revelation 21, Jesus says, it's done, it's finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. To the thirsty, I'm going to give from the spring of the water of life freely without payment. Revelation 22, the description of heaven. It's described as living water flowing out from the throne of God in his midst. So throughout scriptures, living water is analogous to, to life and to salvation that can only be provided by God. It can't be bought. It can't be earned. And apart from this living water, there's no life. But notice what she says. She says, okay, give me that water so I don't have to come to the well anymore. And, and what's actually happening there is she's hearing what he's saying, but she's not yet understanding. It's similar to Nicodemus when Jesus says, you must be born again. And he says, how do I go back in my mom's womb? Or um, you know, to uh, Martha when Jesus says that Lazarus is going to be raised. And she thinks, oh yeah, on the last day he'll be raised. She's hearing, but not yet understanding. But you see, Jesus here is offering eternal life that began on that day. And that's what happens when we receive the gift of God in Christ. All that heaven offers begins to be made available to us on that day. 
1991, when Eric came to a third place, a bus stop at the University of Georgia and shared the gospel with me, I ended up receiving Christ a little over a week later. And on that day, living water, eternal life, was made fully available to me. You see, this life can do anything to me, but it can't take away what Christ has already provided. It can't take from me the living water. And the Spirit of God dwelling within me refreshes me daily when I quench my thirst by communing with Christ. That's what Jesus means when he promises this woman, you'll never thirst again. You see, being reconciled to God satisfies our deepest needs and fills our emptiness. Jesus isn't just inviting her to have temporal need met. Rather, he's inviting her to abiding relationship with the Father through forgiveness of life and the Spirit of God. So the purity of that water being offered, though, stands in stark contrast to the past, the murky waters of the past of this woman's life. I want you to see next in verse 16 and following how Jesus shapes this conversation. He says to her, go and call your husband. Now, I want to be careful here because what emerges is the, the woman's murky past, and we have a tendency to follow that and to make assumptions. I want to be careful to note that just because this woman has had five husbands doesn't mean that she was a brazen adulteress. We don't know why she had five husbands. Maybe they all died. Maybe they were abusive and she had to flee. Maybe they had been unfaithful to her. Perhaps it was some mixture of all of those reasons. We don't know why this woman was in this situation. But regardless of the why behind her murky past, whatever was there, it was enough to make her feel shamed by her community. And frankly, even if she wasn't culpable for a single one of those terminated marriages, she was still a sinner, and so are we. You see, some men and women in our church family have endured the pain of marriages ended. But I want to remind us that few people stand at an altar and make vows with their fingers crossed so as not to mean those vows. I want to make clear that married or single, divorced at someone else's fault or, is it, or of your own, we are all this woman. And if, if, if it were just Jesus and any one of us sitting out in that lobby having a conversation by the coffee. Apart from what Jesus offered us, we would fare no better than her. He could and would lovingly pull all of the skeletons out of our closet, not to shame us, but like this woman, to set her free, to set us free. So when he says, go call your husband, he's not trying to make her feel more ashamed. What he's doing is he's redirecting the conversation so that she can understand that it's not where she worships, but it's who she worships. And you'll see that in verses 20 and following. She tries to change the, the, the subject of the conversation. She says, well, she, she uses a smokescreen, right? She says, well, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but your fathers worshipped there in Jerusalem. A smokescreen is a statement where a person tries to redirect a conversation in order to relieve some tension that they, they feel. You see, the Jews had worshipped on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, and Samaritan's former temple was there 
uh, on Mount Gerizim uh, near where they sat. But Jesus doesn't let the smokescreen in that conversation deter the direction of where he was leading her. He doesn't argue geography, he doesn't argue politics, and he doesn't argue religion. He simply defines for her in verses 19 through 26 what true worship is. True worship happens when a person worships in spirit and truth. It's not about ethnicity, and it's not about a place. Notice Jesus redirects her to the person, the person of God. And that's where we see Messiah proclaimed. The woman says to him, because of this conversation, I know that Messiah is coming. He will explain it all, right? He'll make all of this plain. He'll make this clear. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Where does this concept of Messiah come from? Why were the Jews and the Samaritans alike looking for Messiah? The answer comes through the whole storyline of Scripture, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when the fall occurred and mankind rebelled against God. God made a promise that he would send a rescuer who would make things right, who would overturn the curse. And that's what people are looking for, that promise uh, the, the woman is looking for that promise to be fulfilled. Je- uh, Jesus responds to her and says, salvation is from the Jews. He's not making a statement of ethnic pride. What he's saying is, my people were entrusted with the scriptures and with the prophets, all pointing to Messiah. And yet, we see with Nicodemus, he had all of that and still was yet to believe. But when She finally sees it and says, this is who he says he is. What she finds in Jesus is finally a man that she can trust. Jesus has treated her with respect. He's spoken the truth to her. He's looked beyond ethnic and political and cultural and religious differences. He knows her, not as a husband like she had had, but as lovingly as a husband should be. And here at that point of brokenness and hopelessness, she was isolated and condemned at Jacob's well in the afternoon sun. Jesus meets her and receives her. So what do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus had real conversations with people. We need to engage our community with genuine conversations. That means not just us talking and what we're going to say, but us observing and listening and redirecting conversations back towards the hope that comes to us in Christ. And we also need to recognize that we need to address spiritual needs. As Jason mentioned, uh, the Mercy Medical Ministries, they're providing physical response to needs that exist in this community, but they're doing so for the opportunity to communicate the hope of the gospel that goes beyond the physical to meet the spiritual unmet needs that exist all around us. So we need to learn how to ask good questions, how to make perhaps provocative statements so that the conversation centers in on what it means to worship in spirit and truth. And we need to do what Jesus does here. We need to learn how to speak the truth in love. Not everyone's going to like what we have to say. Willingness to share of our own brokenness oftentimes lowers the wall of resistance. Jesus didn't have any brokenness, but notice that in his ministry, he spent a lot of time trying to break down the walls that religion had built up between humanity and God. And so when we share of our own story, 
of how we found hope in Jesus. When we're transparent with people, people will begin to listen and take note. And that leads us to the last point here in the story, the spread of the gospel through that community. And I know this is a long part of the passage, but there are just a few key points that I want us to note from this. What can we learn about reaching our community from this conversation? Notice that as the disciples are coming back out from the village, this woman has now embraced the identity of Jesus and the hope that he offers. And it says that she leaves her water jar there. That's significant, right? She had come for water, but she had found something better. She leaves her water jar there, and then she goes away into the town telling the people, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And people were like, really? These are the people that she spent her whole life avoiding. These are the people who shamed her. But now she's accepted by the beloved. And she's emboldened with her story of hope. Not because she's perfect, but because she's found the one who is. And he loves her. You see, this woman was what I would call a person of peace. In Matthew 10 and in Luke 10, Jesus sends his disciples out into villages to encounter broken people. And he says, when you go there, look for a person of peace. And stay in that home. Stay with that person. What is a person of peace? It's a person who receives the messenger. A person who receives the messenger. Jesus. She received Jesus. It's a person who embraces and believes the message. And it's a person who joins in the mission. You see, this woman received the messenger, Jesus. She received the message, he's Messiah, and she embraced the mission. She went and told people to come and see who she had found. You know, our harvest teams sometimes go door to door through communities, and I know that's odd to a lot of you. You think, why would people knock on doors these days? That, that's kind of crazy. But understand this, when they go out, they're not looking to knock on every door in a neighborhood. They're looking to knock on a door until they find a woman at the well. They're looking for a person of peace. And when they find that person, the person who welcomes them, the person who embraces the message, then they disciple those people to begin to get the message out in that community. And the reason that they do that is because the resources to reach this community are in the harvest. The resources are in the harvest. The best person to reach a, neighbor, a neighborhood is a person who lives in that neighborhood. And you all live in neighborhoods. North Wake is filled with missionaries that we're sending to other places around the world, but understand this, geography does not a missionary make. Getting on a plane doesn't magically transform you into a missionary. Missions is more about identity than it is about geography. And what that means is that every single one of us who've had an encounter with Jesus like this woman need to embrace the identity that he's given to us. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says, or, or Paul writes about it in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that you're a new creation in Christ, and now you're ambassadors for Christ who have been entrusted with the, the ministry of reconciliation. You see, the missionaries are not just the 10% the of our congregation that we've sent to other people. The missionaries are also right here. 
And so as we come to the end of the story, what we find is that this woman embraces her identity as an ambassador for Christ. She goes and tells people what she has learned about Jesus. She tells her whole circle of influence. What's a circle of influence? It's people that she, that know her. People that are near to us, but are far from God. People in our family. People where we work. People in our neighborhood. People where we play, our third places. What are we doing to engage those people to tell them the story of hope that we ourselves have embraced? You see, at the end of this message, you see Jesus talks to his disciples and he teaches them a lesson. He says, look, lift up your eyes. The harvest is white right here before you. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you didn't labor for. All the way back in verse 2, I want you to notice this. John notes that Jesus wasn't doing any baptizing. The disciples were baptizing. Jesus was sowing the seed. The disciples were baptizing. In other words, they were reaping a harvest that they didn't sow. And right here and right now, Jesus reminds them, as this woman has gone into the same community they just left, but she's gone in not to find a meal. She's gone in to provide one. She's gone into her community to provide living water and bread that satisfies. And Jesus says, the harvest is right in front of us. So what happens as a result of this? You'll see at the end of the story, it says in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believe because of the woman's testimony. She simply shared her story and God's story. And the result of that? Many more came and listened and believed based upon that word. So what do we learn from this? Here are a few points I want you to jot down if you're taking notes today. Just a few key things that we can learn from this passage about reaching our community. Number one, no one is beyond reach. No one is beyond reach. Every single person in our community is a potential recipient of the gospel message. The question is, are we being faithful with that message that's entrusted to us. Number two, we need to engage in genuine conversations. Evangelism is not about talking at someone. Evangelism is about listening to people and redirecting conversations to point them towards hope in Jesus Christ. So engage in genuine conversations. Number three, address spiritual thirst. G.K. Chesterton said one time that Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every person who drinks that third or fourth drink at the bar downtown, they're not looking to escape, they're looking for God. The question is, are we in those places? Are we having those conversations with those people to address the spiritual thirst that they have? Number four, we need to overcome cultural and social barriers. Don't let Christianity be denigrated into a discussion about politics. Let's point them to the living hope that comes in the person and the finished work of Christ. Number five, a personal story is powerful. Every single one of you who've encountered Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you are six years old or you were 60, you have a story of how Jesus is shaping your life. Tell that story to the people who are under your circle of influence. 
And finally, empower other people to share. When you share with people, if they embrace, help them to share with their circle of influence. That's what takes a person like the woman at the well and made her into the best missionary for a village called Sychar. Y'all, Billy Graham was a great evangelist. He preached to millions of people. But I would be willing to bet Billy Graham didn't reach his town with the gospel. This woman did. She went and shared the hope that she had in Jesus. And it made all the difference for the people who were there. So as we pray together here at the close of our service, here's what I want you to, to think about. If you've never had that kind of encounter with Jesus, there's nothing magical about coming forward or raising a hand or saying a prayer. It's as simple as this. If you've heard Jesus say, I'm the living water and you're thirsty, say, Jesus, I want you. I need you. And he will hear and he will respond. And he will fill you with living water. And for those of us who possess that, right, we have the living water as a well springing up within us. What if we committed to weekly for the next year, pray for, care for, and share with just one person every week to share our story of hope with people who are near to us but far from God? What if we just did that? What if we flooded this community? There are 500 members in this church, 50,000 residents of Wake Forest, our little 1% could make the gospel go viral through this community if we all just shared the story where we live, work, and play. So as we pray, I want to commission you as a body of Christ to go back to your workplace, to go to your neighborhood, to go to this community, and do what you were made to do bear witness to the hope that is within you. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would do work, that you would bless this congregation, that we would share the message of hope in Jesus Christ with every person that you've put around us. Bring hope, Lord God, through your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.